Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Thanks for joining us today on the S2 Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter. In last episode, our first guest was Brandon Alley, one of the co-founders of S2 Cognition. Today, we are joined by the other co-founder, Scott Wiley. I'll let the audience pick who's the brains and who's the pretty one, pun intended. Scott received his PhD in cognitive neuroscience and neuropsychology from Indiana University and completed his postdoctoral training at the University of Virginia. He has been on faculty at the University of Virginia, Vanderbilt University, and the University of Louisville. He has published 50-plus peer-reviewed papers and book chapters on brain mechanisms involved in the control, timing, and learning of motor actions. He specializes in how individuals execute split-second decisions to start, stop, and change actions as well as control, control motor impulses in the face of pressure and distraction. So, Scott, you played baseball at Point Loma University in San Diego, right? One of the prettiest places, personally, I've ever been. Would you say it's the best view from a baseball field in all of America? Uh, yes, and I want to thank you for um, making the introductory question about the field and uh, its aesthetics instead of my uh, play performance, so I appreciate that. Yes, it, it is uh, remarkably scenic. It sits on the cliffs of Point Loma, up um, up near the lighthouse uh, in San Diego. My freshman dorm, we could, uh, those that surfed, I was not a surfer, but my buddies that surfed would uh, leave the dorm in their wetsuits and their surfboards and walk out of the dorm, descend the cliffs, and they were in the ocean surfing. Yes, it's uh, it's a remarkable view. If you are fortunate enough to jack uh, the ball over the left center field fence, it looks like it's going into the drink. Um, but yeah, it's 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 remarkably scenic. If you haven't been there, it's worth uh, checking out. Carol B. Land is the name of the stadium. He uh, coached Point Loma. And it, it, uh, some Olympic capacities over the years is uh, in the NCAA ABCA Hall of Fame and is, is, has been a, um, a leader in advocating for baseball and, and in the NAIA. Um, he just uh, passed away this last year. So a little shout out to uh, Coach Carol Land, who the field's named after. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I'm uh... I was in Podunk, Arkansas. Shout out, Cersei. <laughs> How did you and Brandon link up to create what is now the S2 Cognition uh, product? Yeah, we uh, we linked up when we were both on faculty in the neurology department at Vanderbilt University. And we have spent most of our academic careers um, in medical centers. Uh, Brandon and I both had independent research laboratories and a small amount of our time devoted to clinical practice. Uh, Brandon and I, fortunately, being the uh, some of the, the few PhDs in an MD environment, were given space uh, out in an abandoned clinic space in the medical center. And so we had tremendous space, but adjacent space. Uh, all to ourselves, and so we built a 
relationship, both uh, as colleagues, uh, but as friends. And the story is not that uh, exciting. We had both watched the draft in 2014, and we're, we're simply musing uh, during the draft about the terms used to describe these incredible athletes, um, the intangibles, athletes who have a nose for the ball, great field vision, play faster than their foot speed, all these terms that are used to, to kind of capture the instincts of an athlete. And um, we, we started talking seriously um, about what the cognitive sciences and tools that we use to quantify split-second decision systems in our labs could bring to uh, the sports world and how it could begin to quantify things that have largely been considered intangible, difficult to quantify. And that really was the start of it. So we, <laughs> we're we not very creative, um, but this happened to be an idea that, that, that we both, having been athletes at the collegiate level, uh, got excited about and in our spare time outside of our day jobs started to put together the the building blocks of, of what would become the S2 evaluation. That's exactly what I got into with Brandon last episode. So if you haven't heard it, check it out, uh, Brandon Alley. But we talked about the first partner and kind of test subject being LSU and getting into LSU and the coaches and testing. And it was like, wait a second, you guys are working your normal jobs, going home and then typing up these reports and, you know, finishing these reports to give a presentation. I mean, the, the, the story is absolutely hilarious. The time devoted to customizing those things. Um, can you give me your favorite early S2 story? Is there one or two that stick out that, um, that really make you laugh when you look back on it? Oh, there's probably several. And I tell you what, you know, the, the, the early stages of trying to build a, a business and, and just what goes into that unbelievable amount of respect and appreciation for the, the the millions of people who set out to create their own business and start from scratch. And yes, yeah, certainly trying to maintain an, another job and do it at the same time. My, my guess is there's a lot of people in that boat who try to do something creative outside of their, their day and their night job. And so, you know, it, it was, it's nothing extraordinary or out of the ordinary that, um, that, that we set out, I think there's a lot of people that do that. We certainly can uh, relate to their uh, <laughs> the challenges of doing that and the and the demands. Boy, early stories. Um, gosh, I mean, j- <sighs> we really were two dudes in a truck. It, it felt like. I mean, we. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to be candid. We were using equipment that we purchased off the internet that we would then test out. Um, we had to keep everything separate from our, our, our labs and at, at first, so there was no conflicts there. And um, we, I went down to TJ Maxx and bought hard-shelled suitcases to carry the monitors. Uh, so when we, when <laughs> we traveled around to the early teams, I mean, we showed up with suitcases with bubble-wrapped monitors and these stands. They weighed 110 pounds, so we got double-charged for weight when we traveled. Um, You know, some of the bubble wrap was green, some of it was clear. 
the we used Mac Minis um, and, and just had everything wrapped in all these suitcases. I think probably the the, the funniest and earliest uh, experiences. Sometimes we'd look at each other as we're you know walking through carrying dragon suitcases and say, "What are we doing?" Uh, <laughs> we never knew it was going to be like this. So I I think that was that's probably one of the the earliest. Uh, stories of, of just the, what you go through to, to then turn something in uh, to, to, to something that's imp- impactful. So compared to other cognitive science evaluations in sports, what is different in our process of how we evaluate these cognitive process and how we recommend the training of said processes, right? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a great question. Uh, you know, how do we diagnose and how do we measure cognition is your first part of your question. And then what is our kind of framework and approach to training? And let me start with the evaluation side of things. So, so Brandon and I have the uh, kind of a unique training in that we're both cognitive neuroscientists in the lab, but we're clinical neuropsychologists in the clinic. And so, what we use to measure cognition and decision and, and thinking skills and memory skills in the clinic uh, involve a t- completely different set of tools and tasks. And, you know, some of those tasks would measure, quantify things like IQ, your intelligence, your, your generalized memory skill, how many words you can remember if we read a list to you a few times and then we came back 20 minutes later to see how many you could recall. Um, if we read you a string of numbers, how many can you remember over a short period of ten, uh, time and attend to? Can you say them backwards, looking at how flexible your thinking is? And so we use a completely different set of tools. And I think most of the approaches historically in sports have started there, either looking at IQ in football. The wonder lick is a paper and pencil bubble sheet task that has uh, moderate correlations with intelligence, um, IQ. And there have been other approaches, sometimes using the the concussion tests or uh, IQ-based tests that really were intended to capture kind of everyday thinking skills and more abstract reasoning abilities. Now, certainly athletes have to use those when they're studying complicated schemes and playbooks and and it's helpful to you know to be able to 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 cognitively and, and intellectually understand the more complicated aspects of of performance and play and strategy. But when it all said and done, the athletes on the field are using very different brain systems. They're making these sub-second, split-second decisions. The systems involved in processing information that is ha- changing dynamically and changing rapidly we would use a, a completely different set of tools in the cognitive sciences to, to measure and quantify those skills. So that is the big difference. We assembled the best tools. When I say best, it's, it's not what we think is best. It's, it's the best from the field of cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience, the tools that have withstood the test of time and have been researched for decades and really help quantify uh, specific cognitive systems, the same systems these athletes are using when they're actually playing. So not IQ, not everyday thinking skills, 
It's the rapid, fast processing of what you see, linking what you see to what you do, and controlling your actions and redirecting and controlling impulses. So our tasks are designed to capture the systems athletes use when they play. So that's the big difference. And, and I think the other thing that we do very carefully is, is we treat our assessment like we would a study in the lab. We use the best software. We, we, we use the best technology. We use specialized response devices to ensure that every millisecond of a task and a trial and a response is recorded with the utmost level of precision. You, you just can't use everyday computers and even uh, gaming computers or keyboards are notoriously riddled with a lot of variability uh, in their timing. Monitors vary. You can't use iPads to really capture the level of precision that's required um, to, to quantify these quick decisions athletes are, are using. Milliseconds matter on the field. So that's the assessment side. I'm, I'm you know, I've, now on the training side, um, I'm going to run long here unless it. you want to jump in. Yeah, it. yeah. No, I love it. No, so that's, a, that's the, the assessment is, is precision. It's measuring what these athletes' brains do. And so then you get on the, the training side. And one of the things we recognized when we first got into this was everybody had jumped on the brain training bandwagon. And, um, you know, we'd come out of the decade of the brain, brain training games online were hot, and um, <clears throat> you had whack-a-mole boards, or you got to touch boards and screens, you got iPad apps and iPhone apps that um, provided promise to, if you worked on them a few tens of minutes a day, you'd uh, you'd become a better hitter or a better soccer player, and, and um, you know, it, it's, it's um, man, I, I don't blame teams for trying that, but I think they discovered very quickly that there's 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 some hurdles, big hurdles. It's hard to get transfer outside of the sports context from an iPad app or a game on a on a touchscreen board to transfer to the field. It's really difficult to do that, and we've known that. Um, it's a lot easier, and there's a lot of science showing that you can achieve what we call near transfer. And so if there's overlap between the stimulus demands and stimulus processing demands of a, of a drill or a training experience or the response characteristics are similar. So instead of putting the bat down and picking up an iPad, you keep the bat in the hand and you incorporate the action into the cognitive training, the decision-making training. Ultimately, you need to link what you see to what you rapidly decide to what you do. And the more the context can have all three of those elements working together, the more likely you are to, to really move the needle, to develop the kinds of, of brains connections and associations that are cr critical and underlie uh, performance. And so our philosophy on training is pretty simple. Let's first understand what your brain does well and what you might struggle with, and then let's target and design and using cognitive principles underlying those systems uh, to develop smarter drills and activities on the field, in the sport, in the context, keeping the action involved as well. And uh, so that, in a kind of a broad strokes, is, is our approach. So essentially, we are trying to 
efficiently train, right? Not everyone needs the same drills. Not everyone needs to do the same. Now, why that's good to broad stroke, right? That's how it efficiently we can target these areas because everyone's hardwired differently. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, you know, there, there are probably some cognitive skills and decision skills that are, are pretty generic and important to athletes at all levels, but you can always make them harder or easier, uh, more challenging. But you're right. As, as you move up the ladder, you, you need to understand how you're wired. And um, there are just going to be things that, that your genetics and that your brain wiring um, places limits on your capacity, and there's going to be some things that you can work around, you can adapt, and there's going to be some skills that you um, uh, have developed that are exceptional, and you've got to work, you've got to fine-tune those, and you've got to figure out ways to mitigate your weaker areas from showing up on the field. And when possible, some brain systems are more malleable than others. Um, some are tough to move. Some are easier to move, and those that are easier to move and train in context, uh, absolutely, the more customized, individualized you can be. You can have athletes, two athletes that make the same kind of mistakes, but for very different reasons. And if you train them the same, one might get better, one might not. Or maybe your training doesn't address either of their underlying reasons for their, their mental mistakes or their decision difficulties. So. In the first episode, we got really into the beginning of football and the first steps we took in football. I want to pivot a little bit to walk through baseball with you. So my next couple questions will be centered around that. How did baseball find this product? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think we had a, a few connections to a, an, an MLB team or two that opened up very early on. We also had a connection... Uh, we're introduced to one of the assistant hitting coaches at Lipscomb University. We're based here in Nashville. Lipscomb is one of the universities here. Uh, they're a Division I program. And uh, that assistant coach was Paul Phillips, who actually now works for S2. Uh, but Paul had played uh, 15 years of professional baseball, parts of seven seasons in the big leagues. He was a catcher. He's coached collegiately. He's coached at the professional level, both as a, as a hitting uh, coach and as a catching coordinator. Uh, I think you're going to have him on uh, here pretty soon. Uh, but, but just an incredibly talented, very cerebral, uh, thinking ball player, thinking coach. And, and he, we got to meet him pretty early on when we had a few uh, initial engagements with some pro teams that were starting to ask questions about how their athletes' brains work. And Paul, at the collegiate level, was instrumental. We spent a lot of time with him. We tested his players. Uh, he'll tell you some great stories about the initial interactions. But I, I think a few teams and um, uh, an initial college really started to build our database, build our confidence that we're measuring the right things. And from there, it, it just kind of expanded. We had three or four uh, MLB teams establish a, an initial consortium in MLB. And, and we said, hey, we're going to learn our way forward. We're going to do this the right way. Collect, we tested all their organizational players. We started uh, measuring athletes in anticipation of the draft and uh, working with player development staffs a little bit. And, and so really... 
um, building the database so then we could do some analytics. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, every year we kept adding more teams and the word started to spread. And then we built a, a consortium of one team from every every division. And then it jumped to two teams per division. And that's kind of where we stand here. The two are um, um, keeping it so that we... The two teams for division are keeping it so that uh, the rest of the division can't get access. So, nice. Place Let me pivot be. real quickly. You you brought up a really a really uh, Paul Phillips is, does a great job from a coaching perspective, and you get firsthand see this because he's coaching one of your sons, one of your little dudes, right? Yes, he is. Yep. So you get to see that from a hands-on experience, what a, what, what a dude at your son's level gets to learn, right? We wish we learned this at his age, right? When I, we were playing. It's so funny because, uh, I, I mean, I played a little college ball. I don't brag about it. That's all I'm going to say about it. I played at a beautiful baseball park. Did we cover that? Uh, <laughs> but, yes, my 11-year-old, they have an 11U team, and uh, Paul is one of the coaches, and Daniel Shu, who's uh, – Who's another? He played college ball at a, at a high level and, and just as a as a salt of the earth human being, as well as a he knows the game. And these guys are are teaching the eleven year olds things I didn't learn until I was in college. And in fact, there's a few things I've heard them say that I went, huh, that's that makes sense now. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. new to me too. And my eleven year olds eleven uh, year olds are uh, are learning that, so they're. They're getting exposed to uh, rundowns and pickoff moves. I mean, just the fundamentals of baseball that most pe- most kids don't acquire until they're a little bit older. But yeah, it's 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 a real good experience, and um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I'm gonna pivot back to I'm gonna pivot back to us too. I just wanted to take a little trip because I I've heard stories. I've seen them in action myself. How is baseball now from the beginning to to current? using our evaluation and training processes. Yeah, you know, I think the initial interest out of the gates was once they tested their organizational players and started to see that that there was a pattern of players at the highest level, achieving at the highest level, their brains are wired differently. They, they, they just... At the highest level, you have to be physically and technically talented and gifted, and everyone's big, fast, and strong, and uh, has a great, you know, great swing. It's the it's those who can handle the the complexity of the game at the highest level. Those those pitchers do not make it easy. It, it's unbelievable the velocity, the pinpoint precision, and mixing pitches and sequences. Uh, it is it is arguably one of the most demanding um, feats a human being can in, in, can accomplish in sports. These hitters' brains have to process so much information and organize and orchestrate a precision reaction in such uh, a short period of time. It, it is not surprising to us, but it was it was exciting to see that to play at the highest level, your brain has to be able to, to do things at a pretty superhuman level. And um, that said, it doesn't have to do everything well that we measure about uh, eight different processes, the hitters from visual stuff to some, to the motor end of things. And 
you can have different patterns, but you better have a lot of high-level cognitive skills at your disposal. So once they recognized that, there was a, the, the natural question was, well, we need to use this as, as a piece of the puzzle in our draft decisions. And so that was the easiest path. The player development path just took a little bit of time because it, we had to see some pan, patterns. We had to see some quantitative um, uh, prediction models emerge that, that really linked some of these cognitive decisions to specific um, expressions of performance on the field. The player development, too, I mean, they were just in the midst of kind of all this brain training kind of gimmicks and gadgets, so that had to kind of take its course. And when we started to say, look, now that you know how athletes are wired, uh, I think that's where most of the coaches that are that are finding value in S2 is it's, hey, this gives me insight into the why. Why this guy struggle? Why is this guy chasing? Is it because he misjudges what pitch it is, misjudges where it's traveling in space, the trajectory prediction aspect of, of, of the pitch, or is he just impulsive? So his motor system is ready to go after every pitch, and if it's even remotely close to what he's looking for, he's after it. He can't hold it back. And you, would, you approach those different reasons for chase rates, for example, or swing and miss, is it a is it a when do I swing a problem or a where do I swing issue um, cognitively? Uh, you approach those differently, and so they're now equipped with a deeper insight into the nature of, and the kinds of problems and bottlenecks an athlete will experience in their decision making. You can start tackling the root of the problem and go after those cognitive skills specifically, and I think that's how much coaches are 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 utilizing us too. So you're alluding to some serious and significant findings and models. I, I would love for you to talk about some of the most significant ones that you've found so far and, and what you can uh, hypothesize moving forward that you will continue to see. Yeah, I mean, certainly you can, you can look at the, the overall set of cognitive skills an athlete brings to the table. We, we summarize that in what we call an S2 score. And so that's a that's a unweighted average of all the eight different cognitive skills that we assess, and you can look and say, hey, those you know. So if you're high, have a high S two score, you bring a lot of high level cognitive skills to the table to the field, and it means you're you're going to be equipped to to be a flexible, adaptive thinker when the demands are at the highest. And if you have a low S two score, you bring fewer. You may have some areas that, that are, are, are still high, but you have a lot of um, modest to, to lower level cognitive skills. And that's, that might not show up at the lower levels, but at some point it's going to catch up to athletes as the cog when you need those the most, which is at the highest level. Uh, so I would say that, that the... Um, the, the value of the overall score has been really informative. We have some teams that actually rely on the overall score as part of their decision rule um, for drafting, that they're going to lean towards scores that are above a certain overall score because the probability of, I think, 84% of the, the big league sample, which is now pushing 175 big leaguers, we've tracked from minor league to the big leagues, 
84% score north of the 60th percentile. It's unbelievable. 53% yeah. score north of the 80th percentile, which is crazy. I, it, it, w- let me put it in perspective. If you're north of the 60th percentile, you, you've got a special brain. If you're north of the 80th percentile, you're an elite group of human performers on the planet. I'd put their brains up against... Uh, you know, just about anybody on the planet. I think we have 27% of athletes that are north of the 90th percentile. So, I mean, the whole distribution is is shifted. Wow. Uh, your probability of playing with a score less than 40 is about 6% of, you know, of our big league sample score below the 40th percentile. It's, it's remarkable. So, I think that's the overall score. Then, you know, one of the fun ones has been chase rates and and, um, you know, you're always thinking about how do we, you've got to out-predict your past behavior. And you've got to add something incrementally to the model. If the best predictor of chase rates is whether you chase the year before at the level, you know, lower before, then, you know, all you need is to know is if they chased at the lower level. But uh, there's still a lot of variance to be explained. And and so we've identified three across several different studies we've done with, with teams um, how fast you process information at the point of focus. We call it perception speed. That helps you. It's a system that's critically involved in recognizing what you see, so what pitch it is. Um, if you process perceptual information really fast, that affords you an advantage in the box. You're going to recognize, if you know what your, the characteristics of, of a pitch is, the dot on the slider, the hump of the curve, you're going to recognize those perceptual features faster. Um, because your brain processes visual details uh, faster. Um, the other contributor is, is another visual process. Uh, I spoke about it in a moment ago, the trajectory of the pitch. And so we, we, we have a, a measure that looks at how well you can take a little information about the speed and angle of a ball and predict where it's going to end up in space and uh, a moving target. And this is highly not only correlated with walk rates, and uh, contributes in some models to contact rates, but it, but also the chasing. And so, if you're worse at uh, predicting a trajectory, you're you're more likely to chase, and it it contributes independently of what the what decision. So you got the what decision, the where decision, and then you've got the impulse control, as I as I talked about. Every pitch out of the hand creates an impulse to swing. As soon as the brain starts processing the visual details of that pitch, that information. It's not like the brain recognizes the pitch and then tells the motor system. It's feed-forwarding to the motor system as soon as information is accumulating so that the motor system can start preparing for that pitch. So if the pitch comes out at a high trajectory, a high angle, the motor system needs to know that as soon as possible in order to prepare that bat path that can get to that high pitch. And, And so every pitch creates an impulse to swing. And some brains are just wired that the first activation of impulses in their motor system, they have a harder time holding them back. And so they're more likely to hit that, that point of no return. And other brains are really good at keeping those initial motor activations and impulses in check. And impulse control has is, is turned out to be one of the, the strongest predictors of chasing. So there's a few. So from a, yeah, from a brain's perspective, can you explain how these world-class professional athletes, by and large, separate themselves from your everyday average Joe? Uh, not to be rude, but you and me. Yeah, yeah. You know, we 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 published a few papers um, in in football athletes, 
and and made this particular argument, which I, I think the, the the broader research really supports. You know, if you look at elite athletes and you compare them to average folks, or if you look at the highest level athletes, compare it to lower level athletes, if you measure things like their simple, what we call simple reaction time, see something flash on the screen and react to it as fast as you can. Uh, if it's visual, most, most reactions can be made in about 180 milliseconds, uh, a little faster with sounds. Um, or if you do even a basic, what we call two-choice reaction. Well, if you see a triangle, react with your left hand as fast as you can. If you see a square, react with your right hand as fast as you can. So some real base, you've got two possible uh, stimuli you can see, and then you've got two different reactions you would make. Those would be on the order of, of maybe at the fast end, 250 to maybe 350 milliseconds, depending on the person. If you look at simple reactions and choice reactions, so what some people might just call your base reaction speed, there's not a whole lot of evidence that athletes are better than non-athletes or faster, or the best athletes are better than the lower level athletes. So it's not something inherently different in their reaction speed. Now, if you put a bat in something they've trained in their hand, they're going to be faster at swinging a bat. They're going to be faster at, at uh, the mechanical aspects because they've trained that. But if you look at their raw processing, you know, rea reaction speed and these simple tasks, that's, those, aren't, those don't differentiate. What differentiates the athletes is the systems in the brain that help protect their reaction speed when there's chaos, when there's uncertainty, when there's distractions, when there's extraneous, irrelevant information trying to get you to react in an incorrect or unwanted way. It's these, these systems in the brain, we call them executive control systems. They're right here, right behind our forehead, the frontal lobes of the brain that are critically involved in shielding and guarding our, our motor reactions in chaos and, and allowing us to be flexible when we need to be flexible and to be stable when we need to be stable in our reactions. Those high-level control and organizational systems among athletes seem to be uniquely wired, and uh, that's what separates these athletes. They can control their impulses better. They can shield distractions and still react fast faster than, than uh, non-athletes. It's these, these high-level uh, executive cognitive control systems in their brain that are the separator. So my next question was right in, in line with what you just said. So you specialize in the motor control functions of the brain like what we just talked about. So explain to the, to the listener what that means in everyday life when, when they have to make these split-second decisions. What does that look like from an executive function standpoint? Yeah, fortunately, fortunately, we don't have a lot of situations or frequent situations where we have sub 400 milliseconds to uh, hit a baseball <laughs> flying at you. Yes. Um, yes. We're not facing the Scherzers of the world and the, uh, the guys that are, that are bringing the heat. Um, but but which undoubtedly we use these systems without even being aware of using these systems. We use these systems when we drive when we're making motor control decisions, you're applying the gas and then something happens in front of you, you detect what it is and you suddenly decide, 
I need to stop. And so the first thing you do is you have to stop the gas pedal response. So you have to inhibit the gas pedal response and then shift the foot, send a shifting command to move the foot over and then apply a, a, a response, a pressure to, to the brake pedal. You might not be coordinating your, the steering wheel at the same time and making movements, and so you're, you're flexibly adapting multiple motor groups to accomplish this task. Um, in everyday life, I mean, this is, this is another automobile example. You've ever sat uh, uh, next to the turning lane and you're kind of distracted in thought. Uh, you're probably not on your phone or anything because nobody would do that these days, but the the turn lane gets the green signal. You're not looking at the lights. You see the car next to you move, and you, you kind of impulsively react and start to go. And I mean, we've all seen people just charge right through the intersection, almost cause an accident, or get halfway and slam on the brakes. I mean, these situations where we are our our tension and our motor reactions are captured and driven by irrelevant extraneous information uh lots of examples when you're navigating through crowds and you're starting and stopping and anticipating and adjusting and hesitating it just just to time your reactions um to navigate our environments um, th those are some other great examples when the coffee cup falls unexpectedly unpredictably and you do this backhand catch with your uh, non-dominant hand and nobody's around to see how elegant and how swift <laughs> that was. I mean, those kinds of, of reactions happen all the time in day-to-day -day life. And uh, yeah, I study the brain systems that help m create those kinds of adaptive, flexible um, reactions, as well as the systems that we try to create automaticity or stability in performance. And and sports and athletes are, are a mixture. Uh, I remember reading when we first got into this, this is, this is kind of a side note, you know, pardon my digression, but, um, you know, you don't want to use your frontal lobes. You don't want to think when you're performing. And there's an element of that's true. I get, I get the gist of what, they, uh, what was trying to be conveyed, but we do try to automate and create a, a really stable system where we can repeat actions without having to think about the components of action. But we always have our brain on alert. There are systems devoted to recognizing and detecting when things aren't quite what we expected and being flexible. So we need to be stable and flexible as athletes. And those those systems and their interplay are what's uh, occupied a lot of my, my training and, and thinking over the years. It's fascinating to me. So how does our product then fit into youth sports and specifically baseball, right? We've talked about from a professional level, even a collegiate level, how it's been utilized. From your perspective, especially as a dad, you got sons, I know you put them through drills. Well, how can this be adapted in the youth market? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty simple. I mean, I've, I've got two little dudes and uh, who knows, they might not be great athletes, but hopefully they'll be good thinkers on the field and that'll buy them some time and buy them some success. Uh, I, I think, you know, most emphasis naturally in sports is on the, the physical and the technical development and no question that's critical. That's important. Um, 
you've, you've got to have a baseline level of fundamental physical and technical uh, capability in order to, to play this game. It's a tough game. Um, all, all sports are tough games. But I think there's really an opportunity at the younger age to start focusing more attention on the decision-making aspects of the game and training younger brains to be more selective, to be more disciplined, to chase less, to improve their timing, uh, to make better decisions about where pitches will cross the hitting area. And I think that comes with experience and practice over the years, but I think we're missing opportunities at the younger age to make that learning more efficient and to get our kids utilizing and making better decisions at a younger age that are just going to serve them not only at the age they're at, but for years to come as they start to, I mean, we just talked about it. As you move up the levels, the game gets faster and more complicated. And if if we let the decision-making lag behind, you're going to have these physically, technically sound athletes who struggle to make good decisions in the box. We want to correct that. We, we want to build athletes and, 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 and help our kids be good decision makers, obviously off the field, but, but on the field. And then they're probably not mutually exclusive. They probably benefit each other. And so you make good decisions on the field. You learn how to train your decision making. There's, there's undoubtedly going to be uh, applications of that outside of the world of sports. Absolutely. You ready to move into the three random funny questions portion of our podcast? Oh, that means we're coming to the end. Whew. All that right. means we're coming. You ready? Yes. Oh, boy. Okay. No recency bias, but your favorite state in America is? Hmm. And I only say that because we were just in Park City, Utah, and I know how beautiful oh, that place is. Oh, I tell you what, it, it's going to be, uh, it's probably going to be either Wyoming, Montana, or Colorado. I love the Rocky Mountain states. I love the crisp, cool air. Where We live in Nashville. I love Nashville nine, ten months out of the year, but those two, uh, I, I'm ready to move every summer. I can't acclimate to the humidity. It's 96 degrees yes, today. Yes, 96. It, yeah, it feels like 107, I read. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm from Southern California, so I'm used to great weather. I love the state, the beauty of California, um, but I don't miss the crazy drivers, which I, I contributed to the word crazy when I lived there. So I... I, I uh, yeah, I, I'd probably say if if I could pick one place to uh, to spend out the rest of my days, it would probably be uh, Colorado. I like Colorado. Mm, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Okay, you get one superpower for the rest of your life. What is it and why? Shout out Maverick. <laughs> one superhero, one superpower for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, I tell you what. Married with two little ones, that invisibility power sure would be handy once in a while. <laughs> I better not say that one. Um, oh, that's good. Uh, no, that's we're keeping it. Yeah, keeping it real here. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, you know, if you have strength, 
you're obligated to do things. You're going to be called upon to do the strength. If you if you can fly, I mean, I'm I'm flying down to the grocery store because I can get there quick. So you know, I I think invisibility would be nice once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, that's a clutch answer. It's like a guy with a truck. He, you're always you're always going to ask him to help. That's you right. Move. That's right. So uh, yeah, invisibility. <laughs> And the last question, would you rather go back in time to meet your ancestors or go into the future to meet your great-great-grandchildren? Yeah, I, I 100% would rather go into the future um, and see my great-great-grandchildren. I, I think the, uh, no disrespect to my ancestors, but, um, you know, you, you'd like to see... Uh, how your offspring fared, right? And see, uh, I don't know. I guess that's a double-edged sword. If they're a bunch of schmucks, uh, you know, I guess that would be kind of disappointing. Um, yeah, I'd still want to see how the how the how the crew turned out um, two or three generations down the road. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us. We appreciate your time today to tell the story of S2 Cognition in its infancy and now where we are, especially in baseball. Coming up next, we're going to have Paul Phillips, the director of everything baseball and softball here for S2 Cognition. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. Thanks again, Scott. Bet. S2 Cognition's Director of Baseball and Softball, Paul Phillips. Paul was drafted by the Kansas City Royals after playing for the University of Alabama. He logged 15 years of pro ball with six major league organizations. Seven of those seasons he spent in the bigs with the Royals, White Sox, and Rockies. Paul then coached college baseball for a few years before coaching professional baseball. After a couple of seasons as a AAA hitting coach and catching coordinator, he joined our team at S2 Cognition as our baseball softball guy. So, Paul, how did you hear about S2 Cognition originally? Uh, when I was at Lipscomb, uh, Brad Kuhn was uh, one of the coaches there with me, uh, and we were talking about you know brain stuff, and I was reading a book called The Sports Gene, and he asked me if I really got into all that, and I thought it was pretty interesting. And, uh, and so he's like, well, you need to meet this guy named Brandon Alley. And uh, he's like, he's a, he's a brain guy over at Vanderbilt. And so I literally, I, I got connected with Brandon, and Brandon and Scott came over to the school, and they tested our team. And um, I, I just thought it was so fascinating. And I thought I was getting punked all at the same time because they were telling me, you know, information about our players that, like, they don't even know these dudes' names. I'm like, how in the world are they supposed to know how they play baseball? Right. And so whenever I uh, got the results back from them testing, you know, we sat down for, gosh, hours just going over the results. And that was my first interaction with them. So what was your level of skepticism? One of my favorite things about you is someone will say something. And if you're if it's something feels off just a little, you're like, wait a second, I need to make sure that this information is correct. So I, I want to talk to you about your level of skepticism at first when you thought they were, hey, are they punking me with this information? Yeah. How do they know this stuff? Yeah, no doubt, man. It was high. I mean, I just came from professional baseball, right? <laughs> I played um, 15 seasons and I 
for me as a player, I, I think that I've been around the best of the best, right? With the best coaches, the best tech, the best information. And now I'm sitting here in my office at Lipscomb University with two cognitive neuroscientists and they're telling me how these kids play and they've never seen them log an at-bat at all, right? And they're telling me, hey, this kid's going to, you know, he's going to be pretty good, right? And they asked me about him one, they asked me about one specific player and they're like, tell us about this guy. And I'm like, no, 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 you tell me about this guy. You're supposed to be wowing me, not me telling you. And so they're like, okay, well, you know, here you go. This is what we see. And basically, you know, the the kid, we were going to, he was a freshman, and we were going to bat him ninth just to get his feet wet because we didn't normally start freshman players. Um, but this kid was legit, and we thought he had an opportunity to play and, and be a starter as a freshman. And so we were going to bat him ninth, get his feet wet, until we saw his scores and got confirmation from them. We ended up bumping him up to the, to the leadoff spot because that's what we actually envisioned him being was our leadoff guy. And he goes on to be a freshman All-American, you know, because based on, you know, what he had to offer and what he brought to the table. And so, you know, that was that was pretty interesting to me. Just in the very beginning, I was just like, no, no, no. You tell me what you know. Like, I already see what they do on the field. You tell me what what you see based on your results. So there was there was a lot of skepticism there. You know, and I try to poke holes in a lot of stuff, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, we, we want to find something that's true and legit, right? And I want to make sure that whatever it is that, that we're selling to the players and, and we won't buy in, we, we got to have total buy-in too, you know. But, you know, after I sat down and visited with those guys, it was it was um, pretty clear and, and pretty evident that they had something that was different and special. So do you remember that first moment where you said, holy crap, this product is insanely helpful for me? Oh, absolutely. I'll never forget because we were even – you know, I had I had a piece of paper that had every one of my players' scores in every category. I had that on a piece of paper, and I had it on the field with me. And so we're running through a defensive set, and coach is hitting the ball, and and he's asking me, he's like, why can't this guy get this, right? And I look down at my piece of paper, and I'm like, oh wait, he struggles at that, huh? Hold on, let me let me go talk to him for a second. And so I had to go give him the rules, right? He couldn't figure it out on his own. He couldn't. He didn't have instinctive learning very well, right? And so I had to go give him the rules. Hey, if the ball is bunted like this, throw it here. If it's bunted like that, throw it here. If it's done, if it's this, that, whatever. Had to give him the rules, and then he didn't make mistakes after that. And coach was like, "What'd you tell him?" I'm like, "Well, I just gave him the information based on how he learns and how he processes information. I just gave him the rules of the game." He goes, "Well, I was just expecting him to figure it out watching the guy beside him." I said, well, that's not how he processes information, so mm. that's not how we have to coach him. And, and that was, a, that was a, like a, a holy cow, aha moment. You know, I'm like, well, all right, maybe this information is, uh, it's, it really is on point like they said, too. So how quickly after you, you initially got the information was that moment? Probably, it was probably, I mean, as soon as I started having conversations with them, it started happening immediately, you know, but then when I started seeing it in front of me happening on the field and me actually explaining it to the kids because I understood it, then that was something I was just like, how did I ever play or do anything without this information? You know, as a coach, it's unbelievable yeah. how it, it eliminates the guesswork on what a player needs. 
So how does our data help major league teams as well as college baseball teams? You can go a million different directions with that, but you personally, how have you seen it work in both major league baseball and college baseball? Well, you know, the best coaches are, are in college baseball, the best recruiters, right? And so if you recruit the best players, you typically don't have to develop too much because they're already better than everybody else. Right, and so it helps your winning percentage tremendously. Right, and same thing in pro ball. If you pick the best players, it's a lot easier for your player development staff to fine tune them instead of build them up. Right, and so first on the front side, it's picking the right players. So using the data to pick the right players is tremendous with your with building up your organization. And on the player development side, you know everybody has something going on, and so it's whether you have to fine tune or you really got to get in there and grind on it. Uh, it, it helps you, first and foremost, save time on figuring out what's wrong with them, right? And, and when I say what's wrong with them, it's just what is, what is posing their roadblock to, to them having tremendous success at this point, right? And so, you know, you could have swing and miss going on. You could have chase going on. You could have low contact going on. But all of these systems that we can identify, you can see which system is responsible for what action on the field. And by doing that, you're not guessing now what you need to work on because you have the data right in front of you. And then you can spend that time looking at that system, training those systems um, based on the drill work that we have laid out for it. And then you just you, you minimize the amount of time that a player could possibly be in a slump as well. So that's the efficiency that's the of the player. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the whole point. I mean, that player is your investment. That's right. That's right. Can you tell the story of how you utilize S2 with Austin Nola uh, and your first experience in the minor leagues with him? Yeah. So, you know, when, when Nola was with the Marlins, um, we used this product. And it was pretty interesting because, you know, I saw where his brain was in this development, saw um, the abilities that he had. And it helped me with him, you know, as being his hitting coach at the current moment uh, when we first started using it. It helped me understand that, you know, he needed to work with some of the stuff on catching up to a fastball. And so we started working on some of those things and started getting better at those, started doing better drill work to really target that. And things started really started unlocking for him and he started clicking a whole lot better with that. And then once we had conversations about him converting from a shortstop to a catcher, I noticed that his report was matched perfectly to be able to do that. And so that's when, you know, I started speaking with Mark Del Piano and, and the front office about, you know, the conversion of Austin Ola from a shortstop to a, a catcher. And so we started doing that and we started taking what he brought to the table and putting it in his drill packaging for catching and you know the rest is history from there you know i mean we really started just blowing up the the drill packaging based on what he could do and you know and now he's a big league catcher as a former college coach and recruiter how can youth organizations and baseball players take advantage of our evaluation and what we deliver for them well the cool part about you know on the college side looking at these players no college recruiter is going to go and watch a game and ask what everybody's S2 scores are on the front side, right? If you play good, they're going to want to know what your S2 scores are on the back side, right? So it's very crucial for a player on the front side to take the evaluation to see what he needs to work on so he catches the eye of the recruiter on the field, 
right? And so it comes a full circle. The player needs to have it on the front side for player development so that they can catch the eye of the, of the recruiter while he's out there watching the game. Because the better you do in your practice and development, the better you're going to perform on the field. Now you're catching the eye of the recruiter or the scout. Then at that point, he's going to know what kind of capacity do you have? Do you have the ability to play at the highest level with what your brain brings to the table? And then at that point, it comes full circle, right? You know what you need to work on in the beginning. You start targeting that. You start building it up and developing it and grow it. And now you're using it on the field. You're performing better. You get the eye of the recruiter. And now all of these systems are benefiting from you knowing that in the front side and working on that in the player development side. Are the cognitive demands different for baseball and softball players? So they are the very they're they're very same as far as what they're needed to do on the field, right? So we measure the same systems in the brain in baseball as we do in softball because it's very very similar, right? And so the we don't have to search for things, right? Because we know where the ball is coming from out of the pitcher's hand, right? So we don't have to we don't have to search for our receiver like a like a quarterback does, even though he has a check down list, or even even maybe like he gets turned around and now he has to to find and, and track multiple objects. We don't have to track multiple objects, right? As a hitter, there's only one ball coming towards us. And so with that being said, the demands for a cognitive um, system in baseball and softball are very similar, similar um, but they are, they are a lot different than they are in football. So the, between baseball and softball, they're, they're, they're pretty much set the same. That's right, because you're in the box, you're facing a, a you know, a multitude of pitches that you have to select timing from and rhythmically time up. All of those things are pretty much the same because when you're in the box, you're trying to hit the ball. Absolutely. You know, the cool part is, is, is you know, when you, when you talk about the rhythmic timing, I mean, there's, there's a difference between being on time for a pitch with your body versus being on time at contact with the barrel. Right. And those are two separate timing systems that we can identify. You know, if one might be lower than the other, we can identify and target which way to train. So, I mean, it's it can get pretty in depth with how you can really address a player and help them. So you mean when Josh Donaldson hits with that leg kick and Troy Tulo used to hit with that leg kick, you mean everybody can't hit like that? Nope. (laughs) Nope. So that's if if you watch Donaldson, his leg kick changes heights based on based on strikes. Right. And so, I mean, because he knows he has to be ready for certain things versus him sitting on certain things. It's just everybody can't hit with a big leg kick. That's unbelievable. So how are the cognitive demands different for hitters compared to pitchers? Yep. So hitters react to the environment. Pitchers control the environment. Right. And so pitchers have different cognitive demands that they have to have. Right. And so, you know, you're talking about a pitcher can they can process this information in two, three seconds. Hitters are looking at, you know, sub 400 milliseconds, right? And so their decisions are more about reacting instead of controlling the environment. And so that that puts a, a much higher demand on the hitter versus the pitcher, even though each each position has very important cognitive skills that they that are necessary for them to be successful. Uh, but but the hitter has a lot more strain on theirs than the pitchers do. Every fall instruct and spring training that we go out for, when you're working with our major league organizations and their minor league, major league staffs, what are you trying and hoping to accomplish with them when we go out there? 
Well, some of the first things is just making sure that the drill they're actually doing is targeting the brain system that they're actually trying to target, right? And so, you know, there are some, some drills that are very, very good for mechanics that work zero decision-making. And there are some drills that are strictly about working decisions, but they're, they're making it a little more complex with two to three to four systems being involved at the same time instead of really isolating the drill to target the one that they're actually trying to train. And so it's just to make sure, like, I mean, there's so many creative coaches in professional and college baseball. And so just because a drill is harder doesn't mean it's working what they want it to work. And so my job is just to try to help keep them in the, you know, in the idea, in the same mindset of what they're actually trying to do with the brain system they're really wanting to work. Um, you know, but they have some really creative stuff. We just have to make sure that they're they're not overwhelming the player um, with two to three to four systems at one time when they're really just trying to focus on one. So, you know, it's it's really a good time for me because I get to visit with these coaches and these creative minds in creating drill work for these guys. Um, so that's the that's that's the fun part that I get to do whenever I visit with these teams. What's one of the most creative drills you've seen someone come up with? Well, you know, just in the beginning working, you know, when we started talking about timing and working a four plate drill, you know, when you're trying to teach someone to catch up to a fastball and you set those four plates up, you know, a lot of people don't understand the dynamics between the distance and the, the miles per hour. I mean, like every 18 inches is around five miles an hour, right? And so when you're getting close to the pitcher source, it's about five miles an hour every 18 inches. And so when you're moving from the back plate all over the front plate, you're making a 15 mile an hour difference. I mean... You think about going from plate four, which is the one closest to the pitching source, all the way back to plate one, which is furthest away from the pitching source, that's a nasty changeup. I mean, that's a 15 mile an hour difference. If you're going from that first plate, hitting a pitch, and then backing up all the way to that back plate, that's 15 mile an hour difference. That's a nasty changeup, right? And so when you start doing things like that and you start randomly moving around, training your timing system of knowing when do I pull the trigger to swing the bat, that's a pretty creative drill, you know, and a lot of times people do those drills, but they really aren't sure what they're doing. They're really not sure what they're accomplishing and what they're, tr they know they're trying to make it different and difficult. Hey, we're going to do a three plate drill, four plate drill to mix up timing. Right. But it, there's a, there's a progressive way to, to do that drill so that it sticks and actually transfers into performance on the field. Right. And so, I mean, that's one of my favorite drills to do because I mean, if you think about it, in baseball, hitting is timing. In pitching, it's the disruption of timing, right? And so if a hitter can be more on time, then they're going to have a little bit more chances of success in doing that. And so that's why I love doing that drill. I think it's one of the most creative things to do, um, especially when someone's struggling with making contact. Do you have a, you know, speaking of drills, do you have a story with Stanton and some drills that you used to do? Well, I tell you, he had he had an interesting drill that was more about trajectory, and it was pretty cool because you know we we get on the machine, and uh, you know when you shoot leather balls through the pitching machine, he had this drill where he did was a nasty slider at the bottom of the strike zone, and there would be balls. So he would probably have it about just below the strike zone, but every now and again, one of those balls because maybe the the leather was a little looser from going through the machine or whatever, it would pop up and he would smack it. 
he would take all the ones that were just below the zone and one would pop up and he would smash it and he wouldn't swing at the other ones. And I'm like, that's absolutely fascinating. One day when I first started doing it with him, I fixed it and he goes, no, 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 keep it down there. Every now and again, one will pop up and I'll hit it. And I'm like, <laughs> can't wait to see this. Sure enough, dude, <laughs> killed it, killed it. It was amazing. So it's kind of like you're talking about he, he was practicing taking and swinging in the same drill. How often do, do organizations or colleges practice taking? Okay, well, I played 15 years of pro ball. I played, you know, three years of college ball. Never one time did I practice taking. Not once, right? Coached three years at Lipscomb University. Didn't practice taking there until I met Scott and Brandon, okay? Then we started tapping into that. First time I go, then I go to the Marlins to be the AAA hitting coach, working with Stanton in big league spring training. Literally, first time I ever saw a big leaguer work on taking. And so, like, it's just people, people don't teach you how to take. They teach you how to swing and tell you what they want you to take, right? You can't will yourself to take. You have to practice taking. And what Stanton was doing was practicing not swinging at that low slider, yet he was still smacking the ones that were strikes. He took the ones that were down. That's also working on impulse control. Right, and so that's pretty fascinating that he was working on two things at the same time with impulse and trajectory. First, he had to recognize that there was a strike, but secondly, he was only swinging at the strikes and didn't swing at any pitch that wasn't. I mean, that's that's fascinating. That's that's truly cognitive training. It's pretty amazing. Uh, is it true that you will take more pitches in your career than you will see, or and swing at? Yes, absolutely. Well, if if you're good. If you're good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a lot that's, of people there are a lot of people out there that swing early and often, you know, and so, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. You know, it's funny because there are certain players, you know, that uh, in the past I can remember reading scouting reports, hey, this guy's a really good first ball hitter. And I'm like, okay, so let's make sure we don't throw him a good pitch on the first pitch, mm-hmm. you know, and so, you know, with my catching background, it's, I don't want people just smashing homers on first pitch because we try to get ahead, right? Especially on people that you know are very good at it. And some people aren't good at it. And, you know, well, clearly you understand now our program can help you understand who probably is going to be good at it and who's not. So That's right. It's just fascinating to me that, and myself included now, I certainly didn't play to the level that you were able to achieve, but I don't remember uh, maybe one or two drills that worked on not swinging. But, yeah, it was kind of like, yeah, we're we're it. You're always going to swing. That's the goal of hitting. Right. But we're just going to tell you to take. And now seeing it on the flip side and also seeing some statistics that say, yeah, over the course of your lifetime and at bats, you, you will probably see more pitches and not swing at them than you will swing at pitches. It's crazy to, to hear the difference in training. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, just the interesting thing with, with, you know, it's always go, go, go. And then they ask you, why did you swing at that? I mean, I think the true answer is because I thought I could hit it, right? Or else you wouldn't have swung at it, right? right? And so, but at the end of the day, the answer most people say is, I don't know, right? And that's a legit answer. That's a true answer because they don't know, right? Without our evaluation, they truly don't know. And then once you take the evaluation, you see the system is low. Oh, okay. Well, clearly that's why I'm doing it. Right. And then you target that system with drill work and you work on it. 
And you can't, like I said, you can't will yourself to stop. You got to practice it. And then once you start practicing it, you get better at it. That's just the way it works. So what are you most excited about when looking at the future of baseball and softball divisions of S2 Cognition? Oh, man, higher quality of performance. Like uh, when I see players, you know, think about when college programs and pro teams, they're picking better players. Competition level is just going to get that much higher and that much better, right? I mean, everybody wants to see high-quality performance. Nobody wants to see the number one team play the number 30 team and thump them. Nobody wants to see that. That's right. Everybody wants to see a close game, maybe even a maybe even a, a good, you know, high-scoring game sometimes, you know, and, and and so. But at the end of the day, you know, people like action, people like excitement, people. And, and to me, that's what this is going to do. It's just going to make the quality of the player better. Whether whether that starts at at the player development level, which it should in, in youth organizations from them taking the evaluation and seeing what they need to work on to get better at these things, to then at that point getting selected by these Power Five or even these these um, college programs, even if it's a junior college program, you know, it doesn't matter. There's still legitimate programs out there that, that their performance on the field is, is fun to watch, right? And then taking it into the professional level, you know, that's the whole, that's the whole point in player development is to make the product better. And so that's what I love about this is that it cuts down the, the guesswork and it helps us understand what it is we need to work on and target with this player so that we can make the product better. As a father and a former coach, you know, wh- I know you're a little biased with answering this question, but why would you encourage your sons to take this evaluation? Well, because I want to make sure that I teach them right. You know, I want to make sure that, you know, I also understand what I brought to the table because I've taken the evaluation. You know, I've put my older son through the evaluation and I see that I've clearly given him some of the problems that I had. And so with that, I need to make sure that I target that early so he doesn't have that same deficiency later on in his life like I had. And so I want to make sure that I'm doing the things for him based on his results at his age because his age, I mean, you know, he's 11. We're able to move the needle so much more in an 11-year-old than we are a 35-year-old. And so with that being said, I want to make sure he reaps all the benefits of knowing this information on the front end. That's awesome. So we uh, end each interview with three random funny questions. Randomly selected. Are you ready to rock? Ready. Okay. Would you rather relive your best sports moment exactly how it happened or relive your worst sports moment and have a chance to correct it? Uh, the best one. Red the best one. The best. Can, yeah, okay. What's the best one? Yeah. So my best one was when I was um, with Colorado uh, in St. Louis. I was four for five with a homer, three RBIs. Mm. Yeah. I'd take that all day. Do that all day. Take, yeah. Do it all over. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, is it because I said the chance to uh, improve or chance to change your best one? I don't know that I would be able to change it. It was funny because my post-interview, I got out on my last at-bat and I popped up to the catcher. And the first question I got asked was, you couldn't go five for five? I was like, I was just lucky to go four for five. <laughs> I don't think okay, that I could so, have changed that. Yeah, no, no question. Uh, best TV show you've ever watched is? 
Mm, I don't really do TV shows that much. So I will have to go, if I'm going to switch it from a TV show to a TV to a movie. Okay. Top Gun's my favorite movie. Did you see the second one? I haven't yet, but I'm going. Oh, man. Yes, you, dude, it is awesome. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but the, the graphics are insane, how they're able to shoot some of that footage. Yeah. Oof. All right. You're going to get me all hot and bothered. All right, last one. Being a huge Alabama fan and a proud alumni, would you rather the football team win the next title or the baseball team? Both. Both? Both. Either or. Either. Oh, man. You know... Look, I love I love Alabama football with all my heart. I love Alabama baseball. Um, I guess if I had to, if I really had to pick it, gosh, I'd love to see baseball win a championship. Um, Alabama's had Alabama football has had a lot here lately. I would love to see That's some right. baseball baseball uh, love spread across the College World Series. That'd be phenomenal. It makes sense. That is Paul Phillips, S2 Cognitions, Director of Baseball and Softball. Paul, man, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Harrison.